Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Warning, this episode contains strong language and discusses themes that some listeners may find distressing. Hello, welcome to the Standard Theatre Podcast. I'm Chief Theatre Critic Nick Curtis. I'm Nancy Durrant, Culture Editor. And I'm Nick Clark, Deputy Culture Editor. Coming up on today's show... We'll be reviewing Ulster American by David Ireland, directed by Jeremy Herron. Starring Woody Harrelson, Louisa Harland and Andy Serkis, that's on at the Riverside Studios. And for our second review, it's Cold War at the Almeida Theatre. Adapted by Connor McPherson from Pavel Pavlikovsky's award-winning 2018 film, this stars Anya Chalotra and Luke Thallon and has music from Elvis Costello. Plus, from the Young Vic, we're joined by Jared Harris and Joe Cole. The pair are currently starring in Harold Pinter's The Homecoming, directed by Matthew Dunster. I think you, you speak to you speak to a lot of women. You speak to you know, many people, and people say this is just a more obvious version of something that we are still dealing with, and we have to continue to try to tackle and continue to try to work on um, on a daily basis, both men and women. Welcome back to the Theatre Podcast. Before we start, if you've not yet done so, please do hit follow. That way you'll be alerted every week when a new episode lands. Right. What's been happening in news this week? Well, the biggest news is obviously the worst kept secret. (laughs) (laughs) London Theatre and, you know, the the most sort of uh, inevitable but wonderful thing that Mm. Indy Rubazingham has been appointed as Artistic Director and Co-Chief Executive of the National Theatre. Former Chief, former uh, Artistic Director, sorry, of The Kiln in North London. Yes, she's been there for 12 years yeah. and I think it's fairly safe to say she's completely transformed it totally I yeah. mean 100%. from what was then the tricycle yeah. over a decade ago um, and a bit, a bit of a rumble over that as well yeah. turning it yeah. into yeah. the kiln and everyone but got really upset about the name really, yeah. like, really upset and yeah. it's like it's not, it's not that bad yeah. it's, it's not, 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 not tricycle such a rubbish so name yeah. <laughs> for a non-children's theatre well, yeah. <laughs> fast forward to now and there's been a big capsule project the, the whole theatre has been completely overhauled and so is the programming exactly yeah. I think you know right from the start when Rufus Norris said he was standing down as artistic director of the National which was the second worst kept thing <laughs> yeah. in the history yeah, of very the much theatre I think she was always the front runner I mean she she has so much going for her. The National Theatre has only ever been run by white men. Um, most it's only had about them. six since the beginning. Yeah. It has, it? yes. Her qualifications for the job are second to No, they're really. impeccable. She's directed at all the all of the National Theatre stages yep. and shows which are transferred to the West End. She's worked on new work, on classics, on updates. She did The, the Wife of Wilsdon with mm. Zadie Smith at, uh, yeah, at The Kill. Yeah, I idea. Judging by the response from the theatre community, they all love her. Yeah. She oh, clearly she's, inspires she's so a popular. huge... She's been talked about as this sort of visionary director who just brings everyone with mm. her and you can see by that theatre it is very much of the area it is absolutely you know vibrant now it really represents Kilburn and 
you know, whenever I make the trip up there, it's a real wonder. You know, it's a jewel yeah. uh, in yeah, the area, really I think. Is. I was just thinking about the way that she's been talked about. And uh, it's just coming into my head now, really. But it's very interesting the way that, as you say, she's been described as taking people with her. I don't know if that's just entirely because people talk like that about women directors. People aren't going like, oh, she's sort of a figurehead or she's leading in this way. She's evidently got a way of working, which is very... Um, sort of it's collaborative leadership and nurturing leadership and she's nurtured you know new writing new theatre making new you know all kinds of stuff and I just feel like people feel happy that there's a chance that they might work with her rather than it being a kind of like oh look at that person standing on a pedestal yeah Mm. she's a very warm individual (laughs) which is is not in itself a bad thing but I think you know she she probably it'll be interesting to see if she does grow into the role of figurehead um, because in a way you know, Nicholas Heitner, when he ran it, he became really a, a leading mm. spokesman for the arts, yeah. didn't he, in a way yeah. that, that Rufus didn't. Really and also, I think you have to. Yeah. You know, I think the role of it's a bit like the British Museum or like the Bank of England. You know, mm. you know you, this is a mm. national yeah. organisation and you have to be you have to lead prepared the national conversation, to speak out. Exactly. Yeah. And lead the conversation and stick your neck out. Yeah. It is a massive, massive job and one that I was thinking about um, Throwing a hat into the ring for? No. I paused at a bad moment there, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> but I was thinking about... Cruelly wrong uh, ...on my way over here. <laughs> um, that equated to, and bear with me here, uh, the England football manager's job. 100%. And the, the reason I make that analogy is because that's always been termed the, uh, the impossible job. Yeah. You get the brickbats from day one, and really no one... No one leaves with their head held high, really. But I think with the National Theatre, if you do get it right, if you do bring people with you, then you can. I mean, yeah. Nick Heitner and actually Rufus has gone from quite a dicey start to actually... It's yeah, knocking it out of the park. Now. At the moment, yes. The, yeah. But the way people talk, and from what very little I know of Indu, she has all the requisite qualifications mm, to do it. I'm sure that Indu will put her own stamp on it you know, very quickly and very firmly. Yeah, anyway. congratulations to congratulations her. Congratulations really to her. Excited. I want to mention something that we all did this week, which yes. was really fun. It was such a lovely thing. So all of us, like school outing, went along to the unveiling of a plaque to the implacable Hester Leggett, who played a pivotal role in Operation Mincemeat during the Second World War, but, but who, it turns out, by a simple spelling error, had effectively been erased from history, more or less. And she is one of the important characters in Operation Mincemeat, the musical, which regular listeners will now be sick of hearing about because we love well, it so and much. And she gets the amazing song that everyone oh loves and everyone remembers, Dear Bill, because it brings a tear to even the uh, stoniest of her eyes. A snivel, <laughs> a proper snivel. Yeah. A bunch of major fans of Mincemeat. Mincefluencers. Min- the Mincefluencers, which always makes me laugh. They began searching for her and they scoured the National Archives at Kew and the Imperial War Museum and they did an open source investigation and they tried to get potential relatives. And they got they wrote to MI5. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I'm not saying yeah. they broke it. <laughs> I mean, they went through official channels. So, yeah, yeah. so they did a bit, but like, then they wouldn't confirm for ages that she'd worked in wartime security, mm. but uh, they were able to sort of tell Hester's story for the first time properly because mm. she died at, I think, the age of about 83 or something, mm. uh, never having been, you know, it, it being even slightly acknowledged. And I'm sure never expecting acknowledgement yeah. because, you know, one didn't then, did one. Yeah. But I just think it's so lovely and it's testament also for me to the intensity of love for this show, mm. but also of the intensity of love of musical theatre 
uh, fans whose obsession is sort of comparable to the the, the kind of the most rabid of Swifty. Um, <laughs> I think it's really it was just really nice, and we were all crammed up a stairwell with about six hundred people <laughs> trying to film yes. it all on our phones, <laughs> and it was really funny. It's considerably less slick operation than Operation Mincemeat <laughs> yeah, itself, yeah, wasn't yeah, it? Really? it was. Well, and that popularity has allowed it to announce that it is uh, extending for the seventh time no. into yeah. September oh next God, year. Oh my God, I missed that! Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. fantastic! God, they must be tired. Well, and there's one more piece of news, just the, the small matter of a, a, another production announcement. Um, Paddington the Musical. Could it be more exciting? Yeah. I don't think it could. I mean, it's heading this way in 2025, backed by Sonia Friedman, who yeah. is obviously the super producer behind Stranger Things and Harry Potter and many, many more critical and commercial hits. We have Likely a book- to be a bit less dark than both of those, actually. Yes, I <laughs> imagine so. <laughs> but yeah, book by Jessica Swale and the music and lyrics by McFly's Tom Fletcher. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Jessica Swale wrote Nell Gwynn, of yes. course. Yeah, which is uh, lovely. And she also won the, uh, the Evening Standard's Most Promising Playwright nomination for Blue Stockings at the Globe. Tom Fletcher, I mean, he is a, he's just a ridiculously talented polymath, isn't he? Um, yeah. Luke Shepard directing. He did Anne Juliet, didn't he? He did do Anne Juliet, and um, he's going to be directing Starlight Express as well at the Troubadour, so... Wow. There we go. Um, it's going to be a bit of a Paddington, Paddington tastic couple of years, actually, because there's Paddington Experience coming to County Hall uh, wow. next year. And also Paddington in Peru is out in November next year, okay. which is probably the biggest the, release yeah. of the year. What's the Paddington Experience? You walk in and you're immediately orphaned or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's a packed show today. Let's get stuck into our first review. This is Ulster American at Riverside Studios, David Ireland's dark comedy starring Andy Serkis, Woody Harrelson and Louisa Harland. I am yet to see it. Nick and Nick, is it all hype? We should start, first of all, by saying if ever a show needed a trigger warning and a review of the show needed a trigger warning, this is the one. So uh, be yes. advised, we are going to be talking about um, some of the very dark themes uh, that the, the show covers, that, yep. uh, largely about sexual assault mm-hmm. um, that's that's uh, you know part of the play so um, yeah do do be advised doesn't actually happen in the play though does it no it's no, just no, they discussion just talk about it. It. probably the first thing to say before we get I mean obviously Woody Harrelson is the draw here although um, both Circus and Harlan will have their own sort of fan bases yeah. but the first we probably really need to address first is David Ireland here is he Cypress no, Avenue yes, yes that's right so he's an Northern Irish playwright um, now I think resident in, in uh, Scotland and he loves to shock to shake audiences out of their complacency and it, in a sense, in their complicity, the sort of smug yes. complicity of sitting in a sitting in a nice warm theatre, congratulating yourself on how liberal you are, mm-hmm. and also sometimes laughing at stuff that you really don't feel you should be laughing at. But mm. being given permission by a playwright through appalling characters, for exactly. example. Mm. So the premise of this play is, is it's basically Harrelson sending himself up. He plays this dim-witted uh, American star who has signed on. Um, like megastar. We're talking mega A-lister. We're talking yeah. Oscar, Oscar-winning yeah. A-lister, friends with the great and the good, Quentin Tarantino and everyone, yeah. um, has signed up to do uh, a play written by a unionist Ulster woman for an English director in London in the mistaken belief that he's going to be playing a Catholic Republican hero because he's that stupid. Right. Um, and even though the absolute opposite is in the script, the, yes. he is playing you know, an angry Ulster unionist who only talks about Irish Catholics in derogatory terms. Absolutely, and goes around murdering them. Yes. You know, so, uh, right. Yeah. Right. So, so he um, hasn't quite picked up on that. He has a sort of, yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, yes. So we open with uh, Andy Serkis playing the director Lee, um, coping with this sort of torrent of L.A. 
actually woo-woo yeah. and talk of <laughs> his, you know, 12-step recovery program yeah. and winning his Oscar and stuff like that. But yeah. it very quickly descends into um, very tricky material yeah. where basically, and this is where people may, may want to stop listening, uh, the two men discuss hypothetically who they would rape if they had a gun to their head and the alternative was the destruction of a city by an atom bomb. Mm. I think that's all we need to but say about that, really, don't we? That is um, all we need to say. And, but all, well, what we need to say is that then that becomes a bit of a running theme. Yes. That comes back and back. Is it a running joke? I think it's a running joke at them. Right. Yeah. But this is where the play gets very tricksy. Okay. Because there is laughter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And occasionally... The, the thing with this play is it is very well written in mm. parts, I think. And it's a trick. It lures you in, Mm-mm-mm. makes you complicit because the characters on stage are largely uh, fairly ridiculous. Yeah. You know? And so it lures you in with these ridiculous, you know, say this, this Hollywood A-lister um, and this director who's just boozing off because he can't de- deal with the fact that he has to put up with this guy and make you know, so many compromises. And then it'll slip things in that you find yourself laughing about and then you suddenly just find yourself appalled. And that's mm. what the play is trying to do. Yeah. It's trying okay. to make you laugh and then make you gasp. Make you feel terrible about yes. it. And it's not just about sexual assault. It's also yeah. about extremism of all sorts. It's yeah. about sort of identity politics, you know, particularly the way that this Hollywood actor identifies himself as Irish, having, Despite having never, never been even been to <laughs> Ireland. Um, well, and even more uh, significantly than that, this playwright, played by Louisa Harland, yeah. um, who considers herself, well, no, she says she is British. Yes. Uh, but not only does the Woody Harrelson character, Jay, not understand that, doesn't understand that there is any doesn't divide in Ireland means, at all, yeah. but the English director starts saying, well, you're not British. We wouldn't consider you British. Yeah. So there's a, there's a dual narrative going on here about the complacency of British and English yeah, people yeah, yeah. as well. I wondered whether with David Ireland has come across this yeah. personally because I've seen him being interviewed and talking about how with Cypress Avenue he first was commissioned he says he was commissioned as an Irish writer but he considers himself British yes okay interesting so yes. clearly some of this has fed into it and you can tell that there is some you know lived experience in yeah. here as does well does it feel like there's an anger underneath it I think so I think there's an anger underneath it and I think I mean I think on one Which level this enough, is think, also yeah this is also a play about um, being a writer and having your pretty darlings misunderstood and mutilated by stupid actors and directors and critics. (laughs) Yes, because especially as soon as Jay starts saying, well, I I don't think I can play an Ulster unionist, immediately Andy Serkis' director character says, well, we'll change it. Don't worry, we'll change it. Right. And basically this is where the ball really starts rolling downhill and it fuels the kind of mayhem that follows afterwards because Louisa Harlan's character stands up and says, well, you're not touching a word. Yes. She is superb, actually. She brings this steel to the character of, you know, at first she's quite giddy and you think, oh, she's going to be absolutely railroaded here. Yeah. But as it becomes increasingly clear that not only do neither of them really understand what she's written, but they are, you know, and they are willing to throw out any of their so-called liberal Mm. tendencies the minute things get difficult or the minute it looks like the Hollywood star might walk out the door. Mm. So it's just an artifice. All of this stuff is an artifice. All they talk about, um, you know, how much they promoted women... They talk about the Bechdel test, and I think it is quite a funny scene because yeah. they both 
get all the facts wrong. Yes. <laughs> it's two well, men explaining boom. the Bechdel test to one another, and I'm acutely aware this is us two yeah, men. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> We're making a bit of a theme of this yeah, yeah, thing, aren't we? <laughs> we really are. Because Jay keeps referring to it as the Bechdel theory. Yeah. I mean, the thing to say, I, th- I think you're absolutely right about Louisa Harlan. She is the most convincing person on yep. stage. I liked Harrelson's performance, but it is very yep. much a performance of a caricature. But he's brilliant. He's brilliant. He's physically brilliant. Yes. At, at, you know, this character sort of yogic moves yep. and it's okay. The occasional way he's... are so funny. Yeah, the way he jumps his jaw and the way he stands in profile to the audience as well sort of knowing what that profile looks like I think he's very self-aware of it you know in a good way do you think it's successful is my question really like what is it trying to do apart from sort of give you a kick up the arse I think it's successful in giving you a kick up the arse and making you think about these things Mm -hmm. I don't think as a piece of writing it is entirely successful I think it is effective in parts what we should also say is it's a farce yeah, right yeah, down yeah. to the two doors at yeah. the back of the set that people can like through. <laughs> right. So there is no consistency to the characters yeah. whatsoever. You, you get no sense that they've met each other before or that they've ever actually met another human being before. They just <laughs> exist as these immediately created things to sort of work through David Ireland's agenda. Okay. okay, I mean, it's a sledgehammer. It's not a scalpel cutting yeah. into the heart of British theatre. This is a massive sledgehammer with all, as you say, yeah. the issues that David Ireland wants to address and often quite crowbarred in, you know, he goes on to Brexit, and yeah. it's yeah. not what every liberal theatre-goer would like to hear about Brexit, yes. for right, example. Right, so yeah. he dances from one to the next to the next to the next. The writing, I would say, is skillful enough that while you're watching it, it carries you along. Yeah. Right. You know, you're at no stage thinking, oh, this is really, you know, ridiculous and boring, because he puts in enough laughs, right. whether you're uh, complicit or there's not. A, there's <laughs> a great running gag about Harrelson's character wanting to wear an eye patch yeah. in the in the role, it's, it's, and he keeps circling back to it and saying, you know, this this allows us to revisit the issue of the eye patch. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. Am I going to go? I'm not sure. It's, it's also a 90 minute play, which feels 10 minutes too long. When I came out of the play, much like the Brexit voted refers to several times, uh, I found it divided people right down the middle. Really, right. and uh, the younger people tended to hate it. Mm. And yeah. the older people um, embraced it. So clearly, the themes that are dealt with here are hugely difficult and will be hugely divisive. So just take that on board when mm. considering yeah. going. I was engaged and interested and grappled with the issues when I was there and, and around mm. it, but it's left me feeling a lot more troubled since. Right. So I'm not quite sure how I. Well, would, I would, suppose I suppose art should. I've said this before, but it should probably alter your equilibrium in mm. one way or another, shouldn't it? And it sounds like it does. So if you feel like it's something you might, I don't know if the word enjoy is the one to mm. use, but um, it's on for a limited eight-week run yep. at Riverside Studios. Till so January the 27th. If you're really, really over Christmas, <laughs> <laughs> then <laughs> this is the one to yeah, see. No tinsel in sight. Let's go to the ads. Coming up in part two, we'll be across town at the Young Vic with Jared Harris and Joe Cole. See you back here in just a minute. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Millie Alcock, and you're listening to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. 
I'm joined now by Jared Harris and Joe Cole, who are both appearing in The Homecoming at The Young Vic by Harold Pinter. Welcome, gentlemen. Hello, how are you doing? Thank you for having me. Very nice to, to have you here. Lots of people will know you from countless TV appearances and films. Um, it's quite a rarity for you to be on stage, isn't it? It's been a while. So what was it about The Homecoming, Matthew Dunster's production at The Young Vic, that tempted you back? Well, strangely enough, I was talking to my agent in the United States and saying that I wanted to... I mean, I wanted to try and get back into theatre, and um, I had a list, and he said, oh, why don't I have that list? I sent I sent it to him, and The Homecoming was on it. Oh. And he sent it over to his counterpart in New York, who handled all theatre things. Young Vic had hired an American casting director to cast Max specifically. Max, and is, we should say, is the, is the paterfamilias of an all-male household, isn't he? Yes. To which the prodigal son returns with his new wife. Yes. And um, it literally just happened by coincidence. The casting director called up the agent and said, we're looking for somebody to play Max. And the agent went, that's really weird. I literally just got this list from my kind of part in America, uh, in Los Angeles. Jared Harris is interested. Are you interested? And so it happened from there. Right. And how's it been? Has it been stretching different muscles than you do on screen? Very much so. Yeah, very much so. Also, because I'm older, so you have to manage your energy yeah and it's incredibly demanding part from the point of view of energy he's always driving the the uh, the momentum whenever he's on stage you know he's always driving the action and then you know it's a different muscle um a completely different muscle it's the same intention but you just have to figure out a different way of getting it across also on camera you've only got to get it right once yeah on stage you have to get it right every night every night yes yeah, yeah. So. what what was it about the homecoming that appealed to you then because it's i've a, seen it a couple of times yeah. and but also i'd never done pinter right i wanted to do a pinter play i wanted to yeah so and this was one of his plays that i wanted to do there are a couple of other ones on that list and it's fascinating working with some on material of someone who's written with a mind like this because particularly Pinter because he he's deliberately cuts out a lot of exposition yeah. so there is exposition in the play but it's just it's birdseed almost you know and you you start to think maybe that whether or not it's a discovery you've made or is you know he puts these little things in there but he doesn't underline them for you. He doesn't explain anything to you. What was it that tempted you back to the stage? Because it's a while since you've uh, done theatre, isn't it, Joe? Yeah, I, I, I wanted to do a play for a long time, you know, just for the challenge of it all. And just to, you know, I, I fell in love with acting through, through theatre through, at school, you know, when I, was, when I was a teenager. And wanted to do it, but I just couldn't get, couldn't get an opportunity, you know. Just, I think it's, like, quite tricky to get... If, you, if, you're, if you're seen as a film and television actor that's... It's, it's a little bit harder to get yourself on stage. So the writer's strike happened, this came up, and it was the first first offer I've had, really. So, you know, I jumped at it and I thought, <laughs> what, what a great challenge as, as, to do, as to do Pinter, one of his most controversial, darkest plays, you know, working yeah. with these guys. Yeah, for me, it was a, a no-brainer, really. It's an all-male uh, atmosphere, an atmosphere dominated by aggression and suppressed violence, isn't it? I mean, what's that like to play? Joe, if I could come to you first. I mean, you're trying to find the human element of it in amongst what are these very brutish men all competing for the top position within the family. It's like the jungle, it's the sort of lion analogy of the, 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 the father at the top of the tree who's sort of slowly 
falling away and I'm trying to take his place. <laughs> it's a lot of fun in a lot of ways because you get to expel things that you don't get to expel in, 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 in real life. You get to portray sort of aggression and violence and physicality. and Which you've done a fair bit of on telly as well, haven't you? Done a bit, Gangs yeah, of London yeah. <laughs> and the like and Peaky Blinders. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's stuff that in modern society you obviously... Um, you, you can't expel in the same yes. way. So you get put away if you do. <laughs> yes, you get put away if you do. It's been fun, but I think for me, it's trying to find the human uh, elements of these characters, which is actually quite difficult. Isn't yeah, it? it is quite funny, isn't it? Though as well. I mean, as well. well as I being, mean, he he. The, you know, Pinter made the case many many times for the importance of humour. Yeah. In drama and in theatre. So yeah, I mean, and what's amazing is is that when, when we were in the rehearsal room. There were things that made us laugh that don't get laughs. Mm. Yes. And there are things that we didn't realise are funny. But once you do it in front of an audience, because they're experiencing it fresh for the first time and they just burst out laughing and you go, ah, oh, yeah, that was funny. I guess mm. Pinter realised that, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it was written almost 60 years ago. It was written in 1964. Is it relevant to today? Does it feel particularly... With the sort of Andrew Tates of the world, or the concern about toxic masculinity at the I mean, moment. Yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head there. I think you know. I think there are elements of uh, of this play which are, are very much true to today. They're just hiding under the surface, and the, and and this play brings them all to the fore because they are a family living. Um, they're in they're in their safe environment of their home. They're in their living room, so they can be exactly how they want to be, and they can portray masculinity in exactly how they want to. They all do it in very different ways, don't they? Mm. But yeah, for sure, I think you know, I think you, you speak to you speak to a lot of women. You speak to you know, many people, and people say this is just a more obvious version of something that we are still dealing with, and we have to continue to try to tackle and continue to try to work on um, on a daily basis, both men and women. It's it's quite a stylish production and also stylized, isn't it? With the lighting and with the the jazz music that accompanies it and that sort of ramps up at moments of high tension. Um, did Matthew Dunster, the director, sort of suggest what level of sort of realism he wanted to pitch it at, and does that affect your performances? Therefore, one of the things that he made a decision on very early on was to not to allow ourselves that sort of the comfortable um, out of the sort of the Pinteresque opaqueness that there's a kind of tradition of doing Pinter where people say these things with their cards close to their chest and then sort of stare at one another strangely. I mean, he, he, his thing was that there's a, there's a psychological explanation for everything and that we can find it. And, that, um, and then all the pauses, the famous Pinter pauses, he wanted those to be active. So quite often they're filled with movement or activity. And um, so there are very few occasions where people are actually on stage in a silence, in a suspended moment. And those are things that have been earned and they're incredibly tense moments. You know? Yeah, actors quite often say to me that, that sort of um, tragedies or, or you know, plays which are full of violence and aggression are actually make for the happiest rehearsal rooms or the happiest <laughs> company life. Is that true of this one? Are you a friendly bunch off stage when you're not... Uh, it's a lot of jokes. ...butting heads? <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a lovely team. Yeah. It's a lovely yeah. team. Yeah. And is Lisa one of the lads or is she... Uh, sure. Definitely, yeah. Because she's, she's the main uh, lad. 
<laughs> right. Because yeah. her character is, I think, the most, <laughs> the most difficult one for a, for a contemporary audience to accept. Yeah, because you have to, there's a lot of explaining that you have to do. Yeah. One of the people who came to see the play a couple of nights ago said it, it would be almost impossible to get this play on now if it was a new play. Mm. Nobody would commission it. And that's partly because there is no safe, happy ending at the end where it's wrapped up. The male characters don't achieve some sort of level of enlightenment or no. something where they realise that they've been these misogynistic pigs the whole time. Um, and she ends up in control of the family, but still in a way in a trap because it's still in that world. It's it by their terms, isn't it? The men's terms. Yeah, and she's figured out how to take control of it. But yeah. it's still, they have a very narrow view of of who she is and what her function is. So, yes, in that sense, she, she's got to explain it. And I suppose you could say the sad thing is is that people expect so little from men now that there's no blowback on the men for, for the way they behave in the play, mm. but she has a lot of explaining to do for the way that the female character behaves, yeah. so, which is unfair. Yeah, yeah. I also think she's like, you know, for me, she's the smartest character and she plays them all slowly but surely plays them all at their own their own game and works each one individually and obviously there's some scary moments for her but ultimately I think she's smarter than all of them and, sure. and, and I feel like you know for me the next stage could be whatever like she's going to be on her own terms she's going to be doing things how she wants to do um, she's definitely not doing what we think she's going to do <laughs> no exactly. that's for sure and you, and you say that you'll, you say that at the end of the play right at the end that's the be the most he'll give you is Two lines where he says, she's going to use us, she's going to make use of us, where so he realises that they've made this deal that's going to, yeah. Yeah, terrific. Well, gentlemen, thanks ever so much for, for joining us on the Standard Theatre podcast today. And the Homecoming is running until, when's it January running, January 27th. January 27th. And highly recommended. Thank you. So, um, it was great to meet those guys at the Elvick and we think actually possibly the spirit of Pinter invaded the, the room we were doing the interview in because Jared Harris told this wonderful story about going with his mum to the Groucho Club having walked out of a play halfway through meeting Pinter and Antonia Fraser who was a friend of his mum's and saying, well, we just walked out of this awful play. And Pinter said, really? Why? What was so wrong with it? And Jared Harris said, well, they put in all these awful pauses, like... <laughs> 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 and we played the tape back and none of it was there. Oh, so, so we actually had a Pinter-esque silence. <laughs> <laughs> what should have been a great story about meeting Pinter. Anyway. Uh, let's go to the ads again. In part three, we'll be reviewing Cold War at the Almeida Theatre. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, this is Jake Shears, and you're listening to the Standard Theatre Podcast. Now it's time for our second review this week, Cold War at the Almeida Theatre. 
Yes, we discussed in our interview with Luke Thallon, who stars in Cold War, which you can listen to after this episode, whether or not this is a show for Christmas. <laughs> so, well, it's, it's cold. It? <laughs> it's very evident. You do feel the chill. It's cold. There's a lot of alcohol abuse and a lot of fighting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, it's beginning to feel a lot like, like Christmas. Christmas. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It sort of reminded me of this, there's that sort of social media meme about whether the thing is a Christmas movie because everyone's wearing chunky jumpers and fighting all the time. And this made me feel a bit like that. Yeah. Well, the music here is by Elvis Costello, but does any Bing Crosby creep mm, into the soundtrack? No. It's weird because they were billing it as a musical and that's how Luke Thallon described it to us in our interview with him on the pod. But it's not really, it's a play with songs and there isn't that much Elvis Costello music in it and there's quite a lot of Polish post-war folk music in it as well. Yeah. Because this is a story of a couple who meet immediately after the Second World War when the man, Victor, is um, curating and collating Polish folk traditions, music and dance, with a view to sort of putting on a show which will instill pride back in the nation, even though it's been invaded by the Nazis and is now sort of under the sway of Stalin. And he meets uh, Zula, this extraordinary girl played by Anya Chalotra, and they begin an affair, which, well, Well, is not happy, is it, Nancy? It is not happy, no. I mean, if anyone's seen the... I haven't, actually, I'm going to be honest. I've never seen the Pavel Pavlikovsky film, Mm. um, so I didn't know what happened. I mean, you can sort of guess, you know, in some ways. God, they're dramatic about love, aren't they? Yes, they are. Goodness me. There's a very funny line uh, when the, the couple is at one point in... Paris and Victor says to her she's a bit jealous about someone and Victor says to her it's not like Poland here people don't throw themselves in the nearest river every time they break up <laughs> but they really can't get out of that mentality like they it's really true. can't it is a doomed love affair and it's about people who can't live with each other or without each other yeah. and it's about people who can't live in Poland but can't escape it either yeah. isn't it and um, I think it's also it's also how the kind of oppression of state seeps into every part of your being, including your heart, your yeah. love, the way that you can love other people, the way that you can respond to other people, the way that you can create everything. Like every thing, every molecule of you is affected by that kind of oppression. I don't know, Nick, what did you, you liked it. Yeah, um, I think I'd, I'd see this. It's exquisitely sad. That's what this it is. is. It's it's, it's really tragic, but very, very, very well done. I think mm. I don't think I've ever seen Anya Chalotra act on stage before. She's mostly famous for The Witcher, you know, the, the supernatural TV series. Which I've also but never she's seen. Sort of a, she's a revelation here. Um, <laughs> she's great. You know, looks incredibly sort of soulful, has a beautiful singing voice, and is full of sort of angry fire. Luke Thallon is extremely well cast, but he's a, he's a very... I fear the word diffident is going to dog him throughout his career because he is a very diffident actor. And that absolutely suits Victor's sort of apathetic self-loathing and inability to commit to anyone. He gives Victor a sort of dual aspect, kind of arrogance and diffidence, which which works really, really well yeah. and also makes sense of a confession that he makes in the final act. He's brilliant in it, I think. Yeah. He, he's so understated, but you cannot take your eyes off him. Yeah. And there's also the, the third character in their relationship is um, Elliot Levy, who's the yeah. sort of manager or the sort of fixer. He's for, a sort for of embryonic tour. impresario. Exactly. In the yes. Of it, and a he? sort of apparatchik. You know, he's the man yeah. who's sort of gaming the Soviet system or certainly sort of understands it. And he has the hots for Zula. Yeah. Um, he's always brilliant in everything he does and he, he appears is. in so much I mean he's sort of like the theatre's character actor really. he is, he I is. do feel like he hasn't got quite enough to do here I did watch the film in anticipation of seeing the show and actually the, the character is much more well rounded in his performance he's basically just a sort of villain in the film very loathsome Lothario you yeah, don't get that here do you? you don't I mean you do get a sense he's obviously got the hots for her but yeah. he never there's no indication that he ever 
does anything about it in a physical sense. No, uh, and I mean he's creepy. Sure, he's, he's creepy, creepy and there he's is not got he's not got that vibe in a really big way. There is the implication good, as well that that Zula is sort of and by extension all the other women and possibly even the men in the in the sort of troupe doing the Polish folk songs are there at the pleasure of, you know, Soviet soldiers or whatever, yeah. you know, and that he is facilitating that, which is something as, as well, which I don't recall from the film, but I think is, you know, an, interp- an yeah. interpolation of Conor McPherson's. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, I think this is extremely well done. And I think it, it, and it I makes think it, it its yeah. own thing. It, it really, I mean, it really hangs together. It feels like, a, like I said, I'm not seeing the film, it feels like a very competent adaptation of a screen work, but it yeah. is... I do think it's testament to how difficult it, that is, that 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 task, that the film is 90 minutes long and mm. this is two hours and a half. Yeah. You know, it really brings home the visual shortcuts you could make in film that are simply not available to you in theatre. Yes. And you are right that the performances are brilliant. I feel like those two, Luke Thallon and Anya Trelotra, have a kind of naturalistic chemistry which sort of sizzles on the stage, but when they are moving apart, when things are going wrong, you can really feel that chasm between them. Hmm. And that might be partly to do with the direction, but I think it's also to do with the acting. They were at drama school together, although they never acted professionally together. Mm. Ah, right. Yeah, Yeah. it did say in the curtain call, it did feel like they were super close. Yes. Actually, it was lovely. One thing I did want to say about this as well is I thought it was very stylish. I mean, a bit like The Homecoming is also very stylish. Mm. They're they're sort of, you know, they're challenging, um, emotionally wrenching plays, but they look fabulous. they also they kind of show you the passage of time through fashion yeah you know because there's a period over which the two lovers cannot be together and it's a long period it's like Mm. a period of several years it goes from the 50s clearly into the 60s and and the fashions change it does work it does work really really well yeah it's true but and you have sort of uh folk fashions at the start with the with the dancers don't you and you have quite a bit of sort of uh, and the girls are dressed dressed like like properly like peasants as well like people are starving what they get offered is three meals a day and endless political instruction. Like yes. They're not being paid a wage here. They're, they're just, they're sort of indentured yeah. almost, you know, yeah. but they're fed and that is enough. It's really interesting how you see that visually. The stage feels a bit cramped when they're doing the big numbers, like the, mm. the big folk numbers. You know, there's a sort of bit where they you see them doing the stuff that they've been rehearsing These for the dignitaries. Yeah, yeah. And you just, there's yeah. A, every now and again, you just think someone's going to come off the edge, <laughs> which, is, um, which is slightly distracting. <laughs> I can't say I think it's a must-see. Like, all of there's nothing wrong with it performance is brilliant all of that stuff I didn't find it hugely moving weirdly Mm. even though some terrible things happen and I find the ending which I won't give away for anyone who hasn't seen the film I can't find that scenario romantic or beautiful yeah it felt to me like a frustrating waste but then I don't live in Cold War Poland Uh, so who am I to say what lengths that will drive you to but it bothered me but the other thing that stuck with me is this final act confession made by Victor, which does that, that's in the film. I I don't recall that being in the film. I don't think you know anything about his, um, uh, I'm trying to remember how how much attention I was paying to the film while I was watching it, but I don't (laughs) think it was. It feels like quite a big thing. It does feel like quite a big thing in there. I think there's only ever this sort of implication. Right, okay. If if even that in the film of, of some sort of wartime betrayal or, yeah, or, you yeah, know, yeah. or some, him selling his soul down the river, effectively. Yeah. So it's fascinating in itself. This I can't, It's terrible because I can't tell you what it is. Mm, but, yeah. um, but it speaks to a very human issue, I think, which is that of bravery. Mm-hmm. He does a terrible thing, okay? A terrible thing. You cannot do anything but condemn what he reveals himself to have done. But at the same time, I think it raises the point that one act of courage is all very well, but to sustain courage and to continue to act on it is actually too much for most people. 
And I think that's partly why you sort of you retain any sympathy for him at all is actually there but for the grace of God. It's not an excuse, but it's interesting. And I think a kind of horrible dichotomy of humanity, which is that we we must condemn those who don't speak out or act in the best interest of others, even at risk to themselves. And we revere those people who have the bravery to do so. And that is basically the basis of all that is good about humanity. But it is also exceptional. Yeah. And our capacity to hide from our failings, like kind of stick your fingers in your ears, la, 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 your way through, like even the worst things, that ability to sort of hide from it all is infinite. And I find, I found that point extremely interesting. It's kind of, everybody thinks they'd be the person who would, you know, stand up, do the brave thing. Practically all of us wouldn't in, you know, given the chance. Yeah, it really, really stuck with me that. And I thought that was kind of, I think that's important. It's an acquired taste, this, I think. You know, it will appeal to some people and it won't. We can't say everybody must go and see this. Because it is not everybody's, wouldn't be everybody's choice of Christmas show. Or show Mm. in general, to be honest. I mean, like I said, there's nothing wrong with it. It is good. Mm. It is a really good production. I don't know. I just don't feel the urge to say, you've got to see it, you've got to see it. But I think everything about it is admirable. If you fancy a bit of sort of downbeat, sad, a bit of sadness, then uh, <laughs> then this will fill your bag. I'm amazed they didn't call it Poles Apart. No, oh, come no, on. Nick. No, Nick. Just, let's just <laughs> put, no, that that's in. staying in. We are leaving that yeah. in. <laughs> right. Well, if you do uh, want to go and see that, please do uh, pass over Nick's terrible pun. Um, if you do want to <laughs> go and see Cold War at the Almeida, it is on until January the 27th. <laughs> you deserve for us to leave that. (laughs) (laughs) That's it for this week's episode of the Standard Theatre Podcast. Please do hit follow, leave a comment, tell your friends and feel free to drop us a line at theatrepod at standard.co.uk. Thanks to our guests this week, Jared Harris and Joe Cole. And don't forget to give our previous shows a listen. We've got interviews with Hattie Morahan, Patrick Vale, who's currently in Stranger Things, Susan Wacoma, Sir Ian McKellen, loads of people. And thanks to our producer, Rachel Abbott. We'll see you back here next Sunday. <laughs> <laughs>